It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Programme. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll A get through it. social distancing tip. While the CDC urges you to avoid close contact, like hugging or shaking hands, there are other non-physical ways to say hello. Wave, wink, use sign language, salute, smile, give the peace sign, throw up an air high five, do jazz hands. Remember, stay a minimum of six feet or two arms length away from others and stay home if you can. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show and uh, the beginning of the second week of the new year. And uh, this hour, we got a, we got a great show coming up today. In fact, uh, going to be talking uh, a little bit later about the forensic of mobsters' business practices. Uh, from with the authors uh, of a new book called Relentless, where they literally study the business models of uh, various uh, mobster businesses. And uh, in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with Jay Bushman, who has uh, kind of rewrite, rewritten rather the um, uh, some some favorite literary characters in. Uh, it's it's an interesting uh, interesting project um, called Novel Advice: Practical Wisdom for Your Favorite Literary Characters. But first, we're going to talk to uh, a debut novelist who joins me by phone. His book is called Primal Calling. His name is Barry um, uh, Barry Eisenberg, and he joins me now by phone. Barry, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Now, when I say debut novelist, uh, especially with uh, a, a new thriller coming out called Primal Calling, um, at first glance, people might think that uh, that this book was the result of uh, sheltering at home and being bored. How did it come about? Well, it, you know... Actually, um, this I, I've written a lot, but this is my initial, um, uh, you know, venture into uh, fiction. Um, but most of my work, and I'll, you know, if we have time, I'll just share that a little bit in, in a second. But is really on uh, healthcare management, which is my background. 
but this came about uh, about um, maybe about ten years ago or so. I was driving in the car and I was uh, I caught the tail end of a news story that just sounded so intriguing. It was about um, a young man who just discovered that he uh, just discovered his father's identity and was searching for him, uh, and there was a lot of mystery involved in it. And I, I, if I heard 30 seconds, that's about the most that I heard. Um, and I thought, well, you know what, maybe I'm going to try to write a short story about this. Um, and I just you know, put the idea aside for quite some time. Uh, and then I started writing and uh, and really getting uh, into it. And so I, I, you know, I created a whole series of circumstances just around that one little premise. Um, so I actually started writing this before, you know, well before we were all sheltering, uh, before the pandemic was, uh, you, you know, was with us. Um, but that's what it's about. It's about a young, it's about a young man who had always been, <clears throat> excuse me, told by his mother that uh, he, uh, you know, that she didn't know his father, that she had wanted a child, and that she had been impregnated artificially, uh, and that she wasn't aware of the identity of the father, which was, you know, common protocol. And uh, he then discovers a birth certificate that has the name of a father on it, and it just sends him on, uh, on, you know, on a real search to look for him. Uh, and all along the way, he encounters all sorts of different, you know, mysteries, and it's confusing, and things are not really falling into place uh, in a way that would sort of seem logical based on the nature of the search that he uh, that he engages in. Um, and uh, it's so it's it's all sort of a mystery um, thriller might be. T- I know the book sometimes gets labeled that way. In some ways, the book is more about a family and bonds and ties uh, and. Uh, you know, in the search for who who we are as individuals, and um, uh, but but essentially that's what that's what it's about. Uh, and he does discover his father in the book. And and what's what's interesting about this is it it, it uh, brought to mind a couple of other a uh, couple of other stories. I, I remember hearing a um, well, just recently I had a guest on the show mm-hmm. who went through something similar. Now, in in your book. Uh, this young man uh, is a high school senior, Jack Davies, um, is going through some stuff and comes across his birth certificate, which he's never seen before. And that's how he discovers this. But um, I, I had a guest on recently who had written a book that was um, more of a personal uh, story mm-hmm. where he came to find out and then researched and, and dug up lots more about it, that his great uncle was uh, Al Capone's boss. <laughs> uh, and, wow. and, and, it, and it took, it, it, and, and much like the character in, in your book, it completely changed his life. Um, you know, as he dug in and found mm-hmm. out more about his family history. Um, and, then, and then there was a, a group of kids who were helping their mother clean out the attic um, after their father had passed away and came mm. across tapes that were recorded on Air Force One the day of uh, JFK's assassination. Oh, my goodness. Their, um, and, and their father had, had worked yeah. for... Um, either in the White House or he was a member of the Secret Service or something. Mm -hmm. But after these tapes had been used and things had been edited out of them, he ended up somehow with the raw tapes. 
And, of course, they made copies and sent them around to the various museums and so on. Anyway, it was a, a real interesting story. And and what it does is it lends credibility to the possibility that the story you're talking about could actually happen. Oh, you know, it's it's fascinating because the story that I wrote about is really outside of my own experience. You know, I grew up in a loving home with you know, and, and my wife and I have three grown children and an extended family. And so uh, as I was writing this story about a young man who, uh, and again, his name is Jack, and thank you for, you know, for introducing his name. I appreciate it. Um, so as uh, as I was researching this, I discovered um, that there is a gigantic universe of people who, uh, are sort of engaged in similar kinds of quandaries, um, that there are lost relatives, that there are people that they never knew, uh, that their lineage is uncertain, um, that, uh, uh, you know, that they never knew one parent, didn't understand the circumstances around it. And in the course of doing this, um, I, I discovered something about an ex uh, uh, one of my distant relatives that was sort of <clears throat> surprising, and I sort of fabricated a piece of it and included it in the book, but it was uh, it was like a, a third cousin of mine who had been adopted. She's a generation older, so, uh, you know, a, it, it was not uncommon, you know, several, a few generations back for people who were adopted not to be told that they were adopted. Um, that was not an uncommon practice. And she uh, uh, somehow in her 30s, she, when she was in her 30s, she had discovered that she was adopted. Um, and, she, you know, what, what sort of triggered her to really, uh, she always had some questions or doubts about, uh, about her parents because she looked so different from them. Uh, in any event, when she was in her 30s, she had somehow confirmed that uh, without her parents' knowledge that, uh, that she was adopted. And she, um, she started an organization uh, that, uh, this nonprofit organization that would um, uh, allow people to kind of, where she would help people search for their birth parents. Um, and she never told her adoptive parents about this. And one day, her adoptive parents were watching the news, uh, a news program, a local news show, and interview, being interviewed on the news show was their daughter, who was talking about this organization that she had founded to help people find their their birth parents. Well, it was an astonishing revelation for them, and thankfully, uh, after some contentiousness, it somehow even brought them more, uh, you know, more closely together. Um, but it's, you know, it's just sort of this uh, astonishing thing, and the drive that people will have to search for people to, and not surprisingly, but to sort of uh, engage in the most tenacious kinds of searches to find people that they never knew but were that they believe were central to their lives, it's just an extraordinary uh, kind of drive. Um, and the, the number of cases of things just like this uh, was so eye-opening to me. I just could never even imagine that, um, you know, that this, that the world of this was so, was so huge. Um, so, yeah, the stories that you just described, um, I, I came across so many uh, like this. Some, you know, some not, <clears throat> excuse me, not quite with, um, you know the, the the sort of thing they discovered tapes that were made on a on such a momentous day, but 
Um, but certainly, uh, certainly searches that consume so much of them and require so much energy is just such an extraordinary thing. Yeah, what is it uh, about us that makes us want to know um, where we come from and, and that makes that so important? Why would um, Jack Davies, a high school senior, as, as told in your book, um, start on such a quest, you know, why he could easily have said, oh, wow, well, that's different than what I was told, and just go on to the next thing. Yeah, um, you know, it's such it's such a, a good question, uh, and one I think about. Um, and, you know, I'm always struck by how fundamental family is in terms of shaping who we are, um, even if it's indirect in the case of Jack Davies. The need to know where we come from, I think, is such a powerful motivator. Uh, the need to discover who uh, influenced us, you know, both genetically, uh, socially, psychologically, psychosocially, I think that there's such a profound need that's part of the human experience to have some clarity uh, around where we came from. It helps us know who we are. It helps us to know where we're going. And so I think with the character that I have um, uh, or that I created is not, is not different from most of us. Uh, he, he has a need to know where he came from. It's hard to, it's hard to bring uh, any sort of coherence, I think, to one's sense of identity and who they are. Uh, without knowing where we came from. And so um, I think that's a central message in the story that I created. But, yeah, I think your question is so, it's so important. And it, it gets right at the core of how we, define, uh, how we define ourselves, how we define ourselves in relation to other people, and how we define ourselves in terms of who we want to become. Well, and it's it's really interesting, um, Barry, because in, in the story that you tell, um, it's it's the kind of thing that that pops up from time to time, but usually in someone's someone's memoir. It's it's fascinating to me that that this was a story you wanted to tell that was very different from your own experience. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I think about that uh, sometimes. Um, uh, yeah, and and I don't know. Is there something in here that was? Um, <clears throat> is there something in in the story that uh, <laughs> you know reveals more about me than than I might have known at the outset? Uh, you know, I, I think if I could sort of draw a parallel, um, I, I spent my entire career and still do in healthcare for you know for roughly twenty years. Uh, I was in healthcare administration, um, and uh, you know, and for the last uh, fifteen. Uh, I run a program for the State University of New York, uh, a graduate program in healthcare management. And so I've always been in healthcare. And when, uh, to bring it back, when I first started, I worked for about 10 years at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Hey, Barry, I hate to interrupt, but we're coming up on, we're coming up on a break here. And I want to continue with this. If, uh, if you can stick around for a few minutes and we'll, we'll dig down some more. Okay, sure. Thanks. All right. My guest is uh, Barry Eisenberg, the author of a new, uh, it's it's being called a thriller. He calls it a family story, <laughs> primal calling. We'll have more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words.
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Wearing a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties, make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov coronavirus. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com.
Tom Sumner Program.com This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is the author of a new book called Primal Calling. It's his uh, debut novel, but yet his writing has appeared in the New York Times, among uh, other publications. And uh, his name is Barry Eisenberg. He joins me by phone. Barry, just before we went to break, um, you were talking a little bit about how your background is primarily in uh, healthcare. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I wanted to pick up where we left off because you you were explaining that uh, um, this this story is very different from your own personal experience, and you were talking about your your background in healthcare management and how how you came to write this book. Yeah, um, you know, and thanks for picking up on it. Um, so, uh, you know, as I was mentioning, my background is in is in uh, healthcare, particularly healthcare management. And, uh, you know, I I remember uh, so vividly, and this goes back, you know, a few decades, uh, uh, when I first started working at Sloan Kettering, the cancer uh, hospital in New York City. And I remember, uh, you know, going on my way when I first started, and I was pretty young at the time, and we didn't have much serious illness in my family, so being in that environment was was relatively new to me, uh, just in terms of the nature of the illness that was cared for there. And uh, I, I remember very distinctly on my way uh, going to uh, where the you know, where the children were cared for on that floor um, and feeling some sense of anxiety because I thought it was going to be uh, sad and a and, uh, upsetting. Um, and when I got there, uh, it, it was in some ways sad and upsetting, but what really struck me more, um, and again, I remember this like it was yesterday, were the smiles on the kids' faces, the, the colorful nature of the atmosphere in there, um, uh, the kids playing, uh, there were a therapy dog, there were art therapists, music therapists, uh, the, staff, uh, the staff who were such hard workers. Um, just all had such an uplifting uh, face about them. It was almost a joyful, and I realize that might sound a little odd in relation to what was you know, being done there, but it was almost a joyful atmosphere. And it was the first time that I had thought about the notion of courage uh, and determination, and it made me think about that a little differently uh, from the way that I think I had ordinarily thought about it. And that stuck with me, and that became, you know, very much a part of how I approached my work, uh, you know, ever since, and continue to do so. And I think it's that quiet kind of courage and determination that um, relates to, to the characters in the book. So when I think about where, from my own experience, which, uh, and again, I grew up in a loving home, and hopefully my children will say the same thing about about the home that they grew up in, <laughs> but. Um, uh, you know, but but I think the the parallel uh, in terms of my own experience is seeing courage uh, and people having to reach down deep when the circumstances in their life are not what they had expected them to be, whether it's serious illness or whether it's somebody who makes a discovery about a parent that they never knew that they had. Uh, it's it's a determination um, and a perseverance that kind of guides them through. And so th- 
I think that's the parallel between my own experience and what I wrote about in the book. And you said that the the writing that you've done in the past, that this is, in fact, a debut novel, but but you have done a lot of writing Mm -hmm. uh, in the... um, in the past, uh, mm-hmm. were you always sort of drawn to writing, and and did that have some influence on uh, your son Jesse, who's an actor and a and a playwright? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I wish I could write like him, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he, I've always loved writing. Um, I. I haven't dabbled quite as much as I would like in fiction, uh, but I've, you know, this certainly is the first book. I'm working on another one now, uh, a fiction book, but most of the work that I've done before has been in um, healthcare and has been about um, healthcare management and about the direction of higher education. So, uh, but I love this. I'm telling you, I wish I could do this uh, full time. Because uh, it's really been the most energizing, exciting uh, project. I, you know, I just look so forward to carving out the time to write this way. I, I was um, going to ask if you had the bug, but I think you've already a- answered it. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know, I didn't know where the first book was going to go. I didn't, uh, you know, I knew something about publishing and writing, but I, fiction was sort of outside my experience. Um, but. Uh, but it's just become, I just feel so drawn to it. Uh, and since you mentioned, you know, my son Jesse, yeah, he's, uh, Jesse has written uh, a number of plays that have gotten produced and, you know, and also some books. But he, And I've learned so much from him. You know, sometimes you think it's the other way around because I'm the parent, but I really had the benefit of learning uh, so much about this from him. And I think his capacity for... Uh, writing in a way that you know draws you really into the core of a character, what really gets at them, you know, whether it's uh, a sense of sadness or a sense of frustration or conflict. Um, I think he's he's really uh, you know so much more advanced than I am in terms of uh, drawing characters and shaping their experience in ways that get you closer to what their emotional core is. So, uh, so I've had the benefit of learning up front from him. I would think being a professor of healthcare management would be fairly time-consuming. How do you find the time to write a book? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it is. It, it, I don't know. Um, I think about that. I, I think about that a lot because because um, for me, I could start writing uh, actually really early. I enjoy. Uh, yeah, I could start writing six or six thirty in the morning. Um, I've always I always, you know, somehow get up way earlier than I wish I did. Um, but, but I can write from like maybe six to like ten uh, or so, uh, and then do my other work. And that's kind of the way that I, kind of the way that I do it. Um, sometimes it gets a little challenging because balancing priorities and you know, full-time work is can sometimes be tough. But you, know, you try to figure out ways to make it work. Um, And I think the older I get, the less stressed I get around figuring out ways to make everything fall into place. One of of the benefits of getting a little older. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm glad to hear somebody say that there are benefits, because I I find it uh, (laughs) a little taxing. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, it, you've you've written quite a bit, uh, you know, as as an academic. But mm-hmm. there's a, a different, a whole different um, mood or or process when you're writing fiction, and you can take the story wherever you want to take it. You can <laughs> make up worlds, make up people. Um, are you a very disciplined writer, and and did that help you keep on track, or was this something that was it was real easy to get away from you sometimes? Um, wow, that's such a great question. I think in terms of discipline, one of the one of the benefits of my background is that um, I'm I'm able to do research fairly comfortably. Uh, I can think about what sort of resources I should tap into. Um, because I, to write fiction, to write what I wrote about, um, I really had to learn about some stuff that I, you know, just had, uh, you know, a very peripheral uh, knowledge base for, which uh, in the book, which is uh, oil expo- uh, exploration, discovering, you know, relatives who you might not have known even existed, um, engineering. I mean, there are things in the book that are just outside my knowledge base. So um, I think because I have a disciplined approach to research to help me on that end. Because uh, I, I think in order uh, in, in order to sort of be faithful to your reader, um, or at least this is the way that I feel, I mean, I wouldn't prescribe to anybody, you know, anybody else, but I think for me anyway, uh, I thought I really have to learn about these subjects so that I can bring some credibility uh, to the book um, and honor, you know, my relationship with a reader who wants to feel that, uh, that I'm bringing some authenticity and sincerity to to these subject areas. Um, so I think the my research background has helped me in terms of uh, being disciplined about that part of it. But then, you know, certainly as you indicated, you can create a whole world, and fiction allows you to be inventive, imaginative, uh, and uh, and creative. And so, what I um, I found that part of it fascinating uh, that I could, I think in some ways I had this story in me for a really long time. I just didn't have an outlet for it and I didn't have a protagonist until, you know, I sort of by chance heard about this story. Um, so I think for me it's a quite, it, it's both discipline plus uh, inventiveness. And for me, it, you know, sort of just worked out. Occasionally I think, you know, I had to struggle a little bit about thinking where the story might go. And especially because there are, multiple threads in here that have to come together uh i wanted to do it in a way that um uh, in a way that made sense so that you know there were no loose ends um and uh, those those required a little bit of discipline and i had to sort of reel myself back in but um but i i think it would have been way more challenging for me to write this many years ago uh just because i think that as i you know, again, as I got older, maybe this is another benefit. <laughs> maybe, maybe when I think of the benefits of, of aging, it's more wishful thinking. But um, but I also think that as I got older, I, I'm able to approach it with a little bit more discipline uh, and can reel in when my imagination, you know, sort of veers off in a direction that might be, um, you know, that might not work in terms of where the book is headed. I, I heard an interview with uh, Stephen King once uh, where he was asked if he wrote to the muse or to a schedule, and he said, always to the muse, but fortunately the muse shows up every morning at 9 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 
Uh, there's, there's a, you know, raising him. I mean, I just can't even imagine the sort of, uh, how, how that works to have that sort of output. It's just, you know, blows my mind to think about, you know, it's, you know, it's like a book a week. I, can't. I know it does seem like that. Um, I, I, I don't know who you read or, or, who you like to, to read or, or what inspired you to write a book that has been described as a thriller. Um, yeah. I've had uh, David Baldacci on my show and yeah. several times, in fact, and he, um, I, I, I can't believe he's, he's had something 35 or 40 best-selling books. And I, I just, I, I'm the same way as you, Barry. I, I just can't imagine being that, productive i was kind of joking about you know having time on your hands because of the pandemic and <laughs> out comes a novel but um <laughs> but but yet you mentioned that you're already working on another novel is the work on that going a little easier having already done one and and got it out yeah uh it is um so this this next one is about uh, a family um, uh, who's uh, the, the husband. Uh, it's a husband and wife. They, he has his his mom uh, is in her eighties and she's starting to decline, and um, it, it's causing. It, he sort of wants to bring her into the home and spend more time and take care of her. And the wife, you know, is not completely, uh, you know, it's not completely insensitive to that, but she has her own, her own life and her own needs. And uh, is is really looking forward to having some independence and freedom at this time in her life. And so the more that the mother is brought into the little circle of the family, the more conflict it creates. And so that's what, the, so it's kind of in some ways tearing this family apart. Um, and so that's what this next book is about. So, uh, you know, sorry, not a very up subject, but it's, you know, it's really about that. And, and if I could tell you, you know, what sort of inspired this, because I think, you know, maybe some of the listeners would find it interesting, um, about five years ago, um, I, have, I have an elderly aunt, or had one, she passed away, but she, she at uh, she uh, was getting older. Um, she was getting uh, kind of infirm. Uh, my wife and I were visiting her. She lives in an apartment in Manhattan. My wife and I were visiting her, and my aunt had always, she was fiercely independent. She had always wanted to you know, sort of live in her own apartment on her own, but at this point she was getting a bit frail. And my wife said, well, come live with us. And she, my aunt surprisingly agreed, and so she did. Um, we thought that she would not survive the trip from her Manhattan apartment, <clears throat> excuse me, to our home in New Jersey. Uh, it, she was that frail. And she got here, um, and over the course of the next few weeks, she began to thrive and became her old self again. Now, I should tell you, when she came to live with us, uh, she was 105. And um, she, uh, and again, uh, she was on death's door. And after a few weeks being here, she began to be mobile again. Her mental acuity returned, um, and she managed to live with us for a year and a half. And she wow. was uh, she was about as happy as she could be. So she died just two weeks short of her hundred and seventh birthday. 
So I I wrote about this and wrote an uh, wrote an article about this story uh, in the, in the New York Times. I appreciate that you referenced it, but I, you know, so I wrote a story about this and what it was like for us. And honestly, Tom, I can't even begin to tell you how much uh, of a response I got. Um, I want to say hundreds. It might have been you know thousands of emails and letters and people talking about the struggles that I mean, in some cases. You know, we received the most heartwarming kinds of notes from people who uh, who were describing their own very positive situation, having you know having helped uh, and one of their elderly relatives find a more meaningful way to spend their last few years. You know, whether it's in a home or just being being with them, uh, giving them more time and attention. But we also heard so many stories about people who regretted not. Thinking a little bit more about how they could be helpful at those in those last years, and sometimes it wasn't because of intent. It's just they didn't know. You know, they didn't know what they could do. They didn't know how they could be helpful. Uh, in some cases, we heard about you know families who uh, made a decision about bringing someone into their home, and it worked out terribly, uh, either because the person was too uh, ill or infirm and required support that the family couldn't provide, or because it demanded so much time and attention that it. Uh, that the family, um, you know, sort of got uh, away from other priorities in their life and, you know, didn't quite know how to reconcile that conflict. So uh, I, I heard so many of these different stories. And just like the story about Jack in Primal Calling, when I realized I got started, uh, it, it began to dawn on me how many people have a story not completely unlike Jack's, who's searching for a lost uh, parent or a parent that they never knew, and in this case, um, with my aunt, uh, you know, having put this story out there, I, you know, not that it was surprising how many people are, you know, figuring out how to take care of an elderly relative, but the emotional uh, investment that uh, it has it has taken on people, the the kinds of circumstances that people face uh, in terms of managing a relationship with an elderly relative uh, who might need more help than they did just a few years ago. It's just, it's just such a gigantic world. And so um, I'm, uh, so for this next book, I took bits and pieces of things that I've heard uh, from the various stories that have come my way, um, and I'm constructing a fictional account of what it's like. And I don't think people, you know, for many people, uh, I, I, I'm not talking about the quality of how this is going to come out. I hope it'll be good, but you know, you never know. But I think just in terms of the story itself, the story, uh, you know, should resonate with so many people, particularly as the uh, population is, you know, is aging quite rapidly. Was getting this book, uh, Primal Calling, um, your current book, uh, was it, you said you'd had experience with publishing before, but was this experience very different than the experiences you'd had before? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I was, uh, you know, given, um, you know, Jesse's involvement in publishing and, you know, my uh, another daughter who was incredibly helpful uh, in terms of helping to find just the right publisher. I, you know, publishers who I work with uh, before this, 
were um, mostly in the uh, academic and scholarly world and healthcare world. Uh, fiction is an entirely different publishing arena. So um, yeah, the, uh, so uh, yeah, finding the right publisher took a little bit of doing. Um, but you know, again, I've been you know fortunate because of you know the people in my life who have a little bit more experience than I do in that uh, were able to really help uh, and create some avenues uh, and contacts for me. Um, but yeah, the kind of things that they're looking for uh, are very, you know, are very different, um, and I can appreciate that because the nature of the book is so different. You know, with um, with publishing comes uh, promoting, and and writing is often a very solitary uh, pursuit, um, and yet writers get called on to do book signings and readings, and you know, all kinds of. Uh, public appearances and, and that sort of thing, which has been made a little complicated by the pandemic. Um, and, and I was just wondering how you feel about those kinds of uh, activities in the, in the world of, of publishing a novel, um, if you enjoy interacting with people and getting their feedback or if you tend to shy away from those things. Yeah, um I, you know, I have to say, I really appreciate that question because um, it, it is something for writers to think about. Um, it, it, you know, you write the book. Writing is, as you indicated, a relatively solitary experience, uh, and then there is bringing it out into the world, um, and all of a sudden, it's not quite so solitary anymore. Um, I, you know, I'm. I guess I'm just fortunate because I enjoy uh, interacting. It's always been part of my professional work is to be interacting and, and, and um, you know, whether it's like we're doing now, a phone interview, uh, but, you know, most a good deal of what I do tends to have um, a, a requirement to interact and to speak professionally, so that wasn't really new to me. Um, I have to say, though, I... You know, I'm still getting over the feeling of being awkward about about talking about you know this kind of work. Is and I, um, you know, it's a sort of a humbling experience. I mean, I'm I'm really comfortable talking about like healthcare issues uh, and higher ed and you know all of that. It just, it, 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 but when I'm talking about myself, it's you know sometimes it feels a little a little awkward. But I'm getting okay with it. I'm getting, fine. <laughs> I'm well, getting better with that. <laughs> well, we're getting close to the uh, the end of the time that we have, uh, Barry, but I'm really enjoying our conversation. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about your work, past, present, and future. Um, do you have a website? I do. Um, I do. It's, uh, it's called Barry Eisenberg Author. No dots or anything, but, you know, um, dot com. So uh, B-A-R-R-Y-E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Well, um, Barry, we've got we've to end it there, but thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning. Best of luck with uh, Primal Calling and, uh, and, and with your next book and future books. Well, Tom, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And if I could just say in five seconds, um, since this was set up, I've gotten to you know listen to your uh, to, to to your work and to listen to some of the interviews. I really love your show, uh, and honestly, I just find it 
such a, a comforting, informative, uh, informative environment. So I'm so grateful to have learned about your show in this process. Well, thank you for saying that, Jack. I, or Jack, I'm thinking of Jack <laughs> Davies. Uh, but uh, Barry Eisenberg is is my guest. He's the author of Primal Calling. Um, Barry, best of luck, Happy New Year, etc. And you too. Thanks again so much. Take care. And with that, we've got lots more of the Tom Sumner program uh, straight ahead. We are going to take a short break, let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have messages as well. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air 
where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. for you to understand what I'm going to do next. But I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of times. <laughs> but he was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. <laughs> he was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. <laughs> he was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a f- So was his wife. However, <laughs> besides being a brilliant, <laughs> he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease to know. <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> He was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he, um, he crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. <laughs> Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. <laughs> but it sure held a lot of gravy. <laughs> I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but it wasn't successful at all. So he invented Five Up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came Six Up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. 
So I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home. And he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, and here my father stood, burning up. <laughs> he pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. <laughs> so my father said, Borger, he didn't know my first name. <laughs> See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. <laughs> in the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. <laughs> you know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> Male, female, and convertible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer, but I ain't going. Once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. <laughs> How could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. <laughs> and he got her. <laughs> This was another Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Until we
You know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. It's 